The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week, we're looking at how powerful computers and massive data sets are changing the way we study each other, scientifically and socially. Welcome to Science for the People. With me is Hannah Wallach, a researcher at Microsoft Research NYC and an assistant professor in the College of Information and Computer Sciences at University of Massachusetts Amherst. In collaboration with social scientists and journalists, she develops machine learning methods for uncovering new insights about the structure, content, and dynamics of social processes. She is the only person to have appeared in both Glamour Magazine and Linux format. Hannah, welcome. Thank you. Now, you wrote a fascinating blog post titled Big Data, Machine Learning and the Social Sciences, Fairness, Accountability and Transparency. Um, uh, but before we get into the specifics of that, I want to establish some background. So you work in what you call the emerging field of computation social science. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Computational social science is really all about the development and use of computational and statistical techniques to answer questions that are substantively interesting to social scientists. And it's a relatively new field that's really taken off in the past sort of five years or so. And in part, this explosion of interest has been really fueled by the increasing availability of all kinds of digital data about society. And then in turn, analyzing these data sets in order to yield substantively interesting findings has necessitated the development of new computational tools and statistical techniques, which tend to draw upon research in areas like machine learning, of course, statistics and natural language processing. Now, you mentioned machine learning. What is that? Like computational social science, machine learning is all about developing mathematical and computational tools for automatically uncovering patterns in observed data. Although unlike computational social science, the data in question need not be socially focused. So it's worth noting that machine learning draws heavily upon statistics, so there's a lot of overlap between the fields, but it tends to use somewhat different terminology and even kind of emphasize different types of things. So, for example, machine learning might emphasize things like computational efficiency, whereas statistics might emphasize representative sampling when creating a data set. Depending on the particular type of machine learning method or tool in question, the types of patterns that are generally uncovered uh, can be used for a variety of different purposes, ranging all the way from data exploration up to making predictions about missing information or future yet-to-be-observed data. And this flexibility is really evidenced by this kind of diversity of problems to which machine learning methods can and have been successfully applied. So you have things like image classification. So for example, does this image contain a picture of a sloth, for example? You have speech recognition. You have optical character recognition, spam filtering, all the way to things like uncovering the topics represented in document collections that are really way too large for any human to read, or things like finding densely connected communities and communication networks, or identifying influence relationships between people. Uh, now, I think we should probably also define big data. Um, what do we mean when we say that? So this is a great question. And it's a question that I get asked surprisingly often. And at first, I couldn't work out why so many people kept asking me and other people, what is big data? 
And I thought about this for a bit, and at first I thought, well, maybe this is because no one agrees upon the answer. Um, and really to illustrate this, I want to point out that uh, the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, who are two of the largest funders of academic research on big data, give the following definition. So they say, big data refers to large, diverse, complex, longitudinal and or distributed data sets generated from instruments, sensors, internet transactions, email, video, click streams, and or all other digital sources available, which is kind of a mouthful. <laughs> meanwhile, a bunch of other organizations refer to Gartner Inc.'s 3V's definition. And this says, big data is high volume, high velocity, and high variety information assets that demand cost-effective, innovative forms of information processing. And again, this is kind of a mouthful and doesn't even entirely sort of match up with the NSF and NIH definition. Recently, though, I began to think that maybe the reason why so many people ask what is big data is because some of the most salient properties of big data, at least as it's commonly construed, aren't really emphasized or even mentioned in these official definitions. And there are two properties there that I really want to highlight. So the first is that unlike the large-scale data sets arising in like physics or biology, genetics, that kind of thing, um, many data sets that fall under the current big data umbrella are in fact social data sets that document people's attributes, their preferences, their actions, and their interactions. And then the second related property is that not only do these data sets document social phenomena, they do so at the granularity of individual people going about their everyday lives. So in other words, the phrase big data, I don't think it really refers just to data sets that are really large or really complex, even though that tends to be what those official definitions emphasize. I think in many cases, especially in practice, it actually refers to data sets that are both granular and social. So what are the benefits of these big sort of social data sets? What are they useful for? Okay, this is a hard question. I could give you maybe 50 different answers and still have only covered the tip of the iceberg. I don't think it's, as I was just kind of saying, I don't think it's necessarily just the size of the data sets that makes them useful. Rather, it is exactly what I was just talking about. It's their granular and social nature. Therefore, even smaller social data sets that still possess that kind of granular property can be really useful. So, for example, the fact that the uh, transcripts of the Federal Open Market Committee uh, they, they, this is the committee who makes uh, all of the major U.S. monetary policy decisions in the, in the U.S. Uh, the fact that these transcripts are easily digitally available has been incredibly useful for political scientists and economists studying all kinds of things relating to U.S. monetary policy, even though these transcripts only cover a limited number of interactions between a really small group of elite decision makers. More generally, though, I think the reason why granular social data sets are useful is that they enable us to understand society in ways that were not previously possible. So, for example, for many years, surveys were one of the most commonly used tools for studying social phenomena. So, in other words, you ask a whole bunch of people a whole bunch of questions, and then you compute a whole bunch of statistics from their answers. But the problem with surveys is that they're really limited in two important ways. 
First, in order to facilitate valid statistical inferences once you've obtained the data, surveys focus on individuals who are assumed to be independent rather than acknowledging and focusing on the nuanced relationships between individuals. And then second, surveys don't measure actual behavior. They measure self-reported behavior. So I can very easily say that I only ever read nonfiction, but is this really true? So in contrast, this kind of granular social data that people are typically referring to when they think of big data sets really gives us opportunities to study people in society in ways that weren't possible before. So for example, data about Facebook friends or Twitter followers gives researchers an opportunity to observe and study certain kinds of relationships that really in, in, the, in the ages before all of this kind of data availability just weren't possible. And then similarly, you can look at things like reviews from Amazon or Goodreads, which can provide information about people's actual reading habits as opposed to their self-reported reading habits. So what are some of the challenges around working with big data sets? So there are a lot of challenges. This is really an area that's been subject to a lot of discussion and a lot of scrutiny over the past few years. And I think we're really only beginning to start to scratch the surface of these challenges. But that said, there is a community of people who think very actively about these things. So I want to give you a couple of examples of the kinds of challenges that, that have, have been uh, subject to a lot of discussion in recent years. So first, and this has been discussed at length by Moritz Hart in his uh, article on Medium.com entitled, How Big Data is Unfair. Even in supposedly large data sets, there's always proportionally less data available about minorities. Therefore, if you're simply looking for coarse-grained statistical patterns, patterns about minorities may in fact be swamped by those big, obvious, coarse-grained patterns about the majority. Moreover, in some cases, statistical patterns that hold for the majority may even be invalid for a particular minority group. And so as a result, the classic kind of machine learning objective of good performance on average may in fact be detrimental to those people who are in the minority group. So one of the things that I think it's really important to do when working with big data and really thinking about how to work with big data is to ask whether there are maybe better ways to draw accurate conclusions when the data is heterogeneous. So for example, we could say, well, maybe we should be developing aggregate models that account separately for smaller nested subsets of data. And then if so, how can we build accurate models for these subsets given that they can be quite different to one another? And then finally, can we even do that without violating ethical or privacy concerns? Another issue is that the convenient availability of data sets is really one of the biggest driving forces behind some of the big data research and development coming out of the computer science community. In other words, it's really common for researchers or developers, and to be clear, I'm no exception here, I've certainly done this on occasion, to encounter a new data set and then structure their workflow, be it designing mathematical models or developing computational tools, around figuring out some way to use that data set. 
But the problem with using these convenience data sets as the driving force for big data research and development is that these data sets typically arrive from online social platforms, such as Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, and so on. And as a result, they tend to reflect only a particular and sometimes relatively privileged segment of society. So, for example, people under the age of 70 with access to computers or smartphones and stuff like that. Moreover, many of these platforms involve some form of algorithmic intervention, such as, for example, the order in which Facebook displays posts in a user's feed, or the choice of suggested people to follow on Twitter. And then since the details of these algorithms are typically proprietary, it's hard for researchers to be sure that any conclusions they draw aren't just artifacts of these algorithms. So, for example, how, uh, how much are people's purchasing patterns on Amazon influenced by Amazon's recommendation algorithm as opposed to their own inherent preferences? So, one of the things that I typically tend to advocate instead of taking this sort of data first and especially convenience data first approach uh, is to advocate prioritizing vital social questions over data availability. And this approach in, in some ways maybe isn't as common in computer science in part because, you know, we're very interested in developing exciting new technical solutions. So we really are often motivated by the model or by the data itself. Itself. Instead, this is an approach that's much more common in the social sciences. And in fact, I think it's a very compelling approach to take for another reason, simply because if you're going to prioritize social questions, then you can even prioritize those questions that are explicitly related to issues like bias and fairness and inclusion. But of course, doing this, putting questions first in this fashion, is kind of difficult, especially when those questions are about minorities for whom there may not be much available data. And the reason why it's difficult is that it means moving beyond these standard convenience data sets and instead thinking really hard about how to instrument data aggregation and curation mechanisms that then when combined with really precise targeted models and tools, which themselves may not yet exist and may need to be designed for these specific questions, are capable of elucidating these really fine-grained, hard-to-see patterns. So definitely a non-trivial task, but one that I think is definitely worth thinking about when wondering how one can work with big data in general. I think it's fairly well known at this point that uh, some parts of big data makes people uncomfortable. Do we have a good handle on why or what specific parts of big data make people queasy? So I think this really ties into that question of what is big data, and specifically into my answer of, well, it's not just the size or complexity of the data set, it's really the fact that in many cases, what are referred to as big data sets are in fact granular social data sets. Data of this sort brings up all kinds of issues regarding ethics, privacy, bias, fairness, inclusion, and so on and so forth, even kind of trust, uncertainty, and control. And in turn, these issues make people uncomfortable because at least as the popular narrative goes about how people kind of do things in practice, these are new issues that fall outside the expertise of the computer scientists and software engineers who are for the most part, the primary parties involved in aggregating and analyzing big data sets. So recently, the White House did a 90-day review of big data. Um, can you talk a bit about the motivation for that project? 
Absolutely. So this all began in January 2014 when President Obama spoke about the changing technologies used for national security and, in turn, what those technologies mean for citizens' privacy. And in this speech, he asked his administration to conduct a 90-day review of big data to, and I'm going to quote here because I think it's useful to see exactly how he phrased this, examine how big data will transform the way we live and work and alter the relationships between government, citizens, businesses, and consumers. So then the review, which focused on the implications of creating and analyzing big data sets in the public and private sectors, culminated in this, in this White House report entitled Big Data, Seizing Opportunities and Preserving Values. And this was really interesting, and it was interesting for a couple of reasons, but one of the most striking things about this report was the conclusion that, and again, I'm going to quote here because I think it's really useful to see the exact wording, big data technologies can cause societal harms beyond damages to privacy, such as discrimination against individuals and groups. And then the report continues, this discrimination can be the inadvertent outcome of the way big data technologies are structured and used, but can also be the result of an intent to prey on vulnerable classes. So as a result of these findings, which I'm really not sure that anybody anticipated ahead of this 90-day review, or rather, I think there were researchers who definitely would have anticipated this, but I'm not sure that the overall population would have anticipated that this would be one of the major findings. So as a result of this finding, the report has a bunch of recommendations for the president, uh, but most notably it calls for additional technical expertise to stop discrimination and for further research into the dangers of encoding discrimination in automated decisions. And this was really interesting because since then, various individuals and organizations have responded to this call in a variety of different ways. In fact, the Obama administration itself responded to this by, in 20, February 2015, releasing an interim progress report outlining kind of what they've done so far in addressing these kinds of recommendations. But there's other organizations who've also done some really interesting things here. Uh, most relevantly to me, there was a workshop at one of the major machine learning conferences in December that focused explicitly on fairness, accountability, and transparency in machine learning. And this workshop was really awesome, both because it brought together machine learning researchers who were interested in addressing these issues, but also because it began to promote awareness of these issues within the machine learning community as a whole. And in fact, the workshop was actually sufficiently successful. There's now going to be a follow-on workshop this summer at the International Conference on Machine Learning. Uh, and this time, I'll actually be a co-organizer, which is fun. Um, and you can find out more at fatml.org, which stands for Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency in Machine Learning. That's really interesting. It's something that I, I wonder how much the data scientists who were working with some of these proprietary data sets had really even thought about before they started kind of messing around with the data and making decisions about it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons why I really think that it's worth if one is working with big data, to actually bring social scientists on board. 
There's a, a great quote. Um, I think it was in your post. Few computer scientists or engineers would consider developing models or tools for analyzing astronomy data without involving astronomers. So why then are so many methods for analyzing social data developed without the involvement of social scientists? Can you unpack that a little bit for us? This really relates back to my earlier point about the fact that the issues that make people most uncomfortable about big data are those relating to ethics, privacy, bias, fairness, and inclusion. And the fact that these issues are generally thought of, you know, for better or for worse, as being new issues that fall outside the expertise of computer scientists and software engineers, just as, you know, quite frankly, handling astronomy data falls outside the typical expertise of computer scientists and engineers. So as a result, it seems to me that maybe it's worth instead involving those people for whom those issues, in fact, aren't new. And those people specifically are social scientists. Um, in general, social scientists have extensive training in thinking about these issues. So it seems to me that one of the most obvious and simplest ways that organizations can start to take these issues really seriously is to actually hire social scientists to work with computer scientists and software engineers when analyzing granular social data, uh, because they do have this excellent training in thinking about these important societal issues. And I think, moreover, that it's really worth hiring social scientists in a very serious, creating interdisciplinary teams kind of way, rather than, say, for example, hiring one social scientist here and there who perhaps is nominally tasked with thinking about these issues for an entire company, but in practice, of course, can't actually get involved simply due to, to time constraints. Do you have any idea on the numbers of social scientists currently employed by owners of some of these big data sets and work on some of those teams? I don't know specific numbers, unfortunately, but many major technology companies, most notably of the really big ones, Microsoft, where I work, and Facebook, routinely employ social scientists. So as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, I'm part of Microsoft's research division, and many of my colleagues, both in the New York City office where I work and in Microsoft Research's other offices, are social scientists, including sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, communication scholars, economists, pretty much anything, you policy scholars, pretty much anything you can think of. It's really cool. Um, and then even smaller companies are really beginning to do this as well. I know that GitHub, who, who run this site for uh, working with, with source code and making one's source code available and undertaking collaborative projects, they are also uh, starting to hire social scientists as well. And I think this is just really the beginning of something that I think we're going to start seeing happening much more broadly. What kinds of uh, problems do you encounter with this? It feels like these this move to be more inclusive, but also have these large interdisciplinary teams would be both really a great experience, but also a lot more complicated than a lot of the experiences that some researchers or even some computer scientists who are used to just sort of working within a narrow band are used to. 
this is something that I've ended up having to think a lot about over the past few years. Um, when you're working with people from your own discipline, you typically already know what the norms of your, your community are. You typically have a common language for talking about the things that you care about. You have obvious publication venues for academic work and so on and so forth. But as soon as you move over to interdisciplinary collaborations, things get much more complicated. So unlike within discipline collaborations, interdisciplinary collaborations aren't really force multipliers from a perspective of publishing quickly, mostly because there's a huge amount of time that has to be spent defining these shared research goals, establishing a common language for communicating efficiently about them, and things like that before you can even sit down and actually do any real research or work together. So I think this is one of the biggest difficulties in doing interdisciplinary work, especially in academia, um, is that really bringing an interdisciplinary project to publication can involve so much of a bigger time investment than that of a disciplinary project. And then, of course, even when the work is ready to be published, it's really not clear where you should publish it, as these kind of standard disciplinary venues may not be beneficial to all contributors, let alone even the most appropriate place for the work itself. So one of the ways that people have got around this, myself included, is to take a dual publication strategy where you, for instance, publish one piece of work, maybe focusing on the technical contributions in a computer science conference, and then publish a second piece of work, typically showing how that technique can be used to answer these substantively interesting questions in a social science journal. And for the most part, this works pretty well, but it does, again, demand an even greater time investment, um, all of which is, is tricky, especially when you start thinking about tenure and promotion committees. Ultimately, when people go up for tenure and promotion, you know, there is this expectation that you will have a good number of high-quality publications. And so if you're working in an area in which it is slow to, to publish work, even if the work is going to be ultimately much higher impact, it's a tricky area. Um, that said, I think things are changing, not least because many institutions are starting to acknowledge these issues and starting to really explicitly tell researchers that they should be pursuing this kind of work. It's clear that this is something that really does need to be sorted out, certainly within computational social science, and I expect within other interdisciplinary areas as well. So one of the issues I hear people talk about sometimes is that a lot of these big data sets, or most of them to some extent, are very much proprietary data sets. But there's also some concern that some of the research being done on them or through them is also somewhat proprietary and isn't necessarily going to be available for general use. I think that's a really valid concern. And that's Part of the reason why I'm at Microsoft Research, because Microsoft is really incredibly open with their research. Their, their researchers are not only encouraged to publish, but in fact are evaluated on their publications. And I think this makes a really big difference in terms of making sure that research and analyses are really all out there for people to understand, for people to scrutinize, and, and so on and so forth. 
this is a very important issue. And we're definitely becoming more aware that big data companies like Google and Facebook are regularly running experiments on us as users, but we we don't know that they're happening. Um, are these types of experiments ethical or would they be ethical in a social science context? Okay, so that's a really great question. It's a question that's in some ways a little outside of my area of expertise, but I do have a couple thoughts on it, so so I will share those thoughts and then maybe point people in the direction of where they can find out more information about this. So it seems pretty clear to me that there are clearly some cases of experiments, or in particular A-B testing, that are clearly fine. So for example, you could imagine changing the colors on a website and maybe giving some set of users one color, set of colors and another set of users a different set of colors. And I think it's fairly universally accepted that something like this just maybe doesn't really matter. This is, this is clearly an ethical thing to do. But then there are other experiments that things are a lot less clear. So anything involving uh, deception or uh, the most recent popular example was involving uh, looking at emotional contagion, that kind of thing. And then things get much more complex. So it seems clear to me that there are some of these experiments that are fine and others that probably aren't. However, where one draws that line between ethical and unethical uses of experimentation is a super complex subject. And it's one that actually touches upon a whole load of different fields, including but not limited to the social sciences, of course, but also even philosophy and law. And it's partly for this reason that I guess I don't consider myself to be a, an expert on this topic. Uh, but there are some people who who really have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And in fact, many of my Microsoft research colleagues have spent considerable time writing about these issues. So, for example, Mary Gray, Kate Crawford, Tarleton Gillespie, and Duncan Watts have all written about this, both for academic venues, but also for the press and for various blogs. Um, in addition to this, Ed Felton's blog, Freedom to Tinker, has a number of posts written both by him and by others addressing this topic in detail, and I think they're really worth reading. So how do social science and academia address these kinds of ethical questions, and do you think there's takeaways there for private businesses? So in academia, researchers have to get their proposed research approved by their Institutional Review Board, or IRB, before they can undertake any form of biomedical or behavioral research involving human subjects. There's a couple of reasons for this, but the most important one is simply because the U.S. government's, because of the U.S. government's federal policy for the protection of human subjects, which is generally known as the common rule. And the common rule governs all research that's funded by the federal government. And since research at most U.S. universities is, is federally funded, IRBs then have to ensure its compliance with the common rule. But in contrast, since the research undertaken by private companies isn't federally funded, it doesn't need to comply with the common rule, and thus many companies don't have IRBs. But that said, over the past year or so, really quite a large number of companies seem to have started to look into the feasibility of creating some kind of IRB equivalent. And again, this isn't really my primary expert area of expertise, but I will note that most of the people I mentioned in my answer to the previous question uh, have actually thought a lot about this topic. 
um, as well as Matt Salganic, who's a sociologist at Princeton University, who's also spent a lot of time thinking about it and has actually written posts about this for Ed Felton's blog. Hannah, it's a fantastically interesting topic, um, and there's so many potential results. I mean, social data in particular is one that the world seems to have really grabbed onto and run with. And so we're creating these wealths of data that I think potentially may help us answer some fairly pressing questions or fairly interesting questions about how society and individuals work or function together. But it is, again, uh, there's this little concern, this little voice in my head every once in a while that reminds me that a lot of this is private and a lot of this is being guided by people who may not have necessarily a good ethical grounding just from a regulation standpoint. Yeah, um, I think this is definitely beginning to change in part because it's certainly clear to me that the academic community and in turn, because of that, the, the industry community are starting to really realize that these are these are things that they need to think about. These issues of, of trust and of transparency and accountability, all of these kinds of things. And especially given that, uh, that the Obama administration has been doing things like commissioning this 90-day review of big data by issuing this interim follow-up report, I think these are issues that really will only see more attention over the next few years. Does it seem to you both being on the inside and maybe knowing a little bit more in more detail what's happening on the private side and the academic side that some of the lines in these cases are blurring between what sort of academic and what is private business? I think that's a really good question. It's certainly the case that there are many computer scientists in academia who work with proprietary data. So I know of many computer science professors who have collaborative agreements with big companies such as Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Microsoft. So there is definitely some amount of overlap there. Um, in general, I am a big fan of openness. Uh, I did a lot of free and open source software development in my youth, hence appearing in Linux format. Um, and so being open with, uh, with one's work and one's workflow is really important to me. And this is also something that really stands as, as one of the cornerstones of just academia in general, this idea of open publication and of peer review and stuff like that. Um, now, before we sign off, I wanted to talk about your work with Bruce Damaris on gender roles in local governments. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that project, what you're doing and what your goals are? Yeah. So this project is a National Science Foundation funded project that I started at UMass Amherst with Bruce. And it's really exciting for a couple of reasons. So in the past few years, there's been a lot of data driven work within political science, but much of it is at the level of federal government or state level, there's very little data-driven work on government at a local level. So Bruce and I were really interested in seeing whether there was some way to start to take a data-driven approach to studying local government. And at the same time, uh, I'm very interested in issues surrounding things like women in computing and the role of gender within organizations and stuff like that. And I realized that although there's been a bunch of work in organizational 
science suggesting things like that women tend to occupy disadvantaged positions in organizational communication networks. This work consists mo mostly of observational or survey-based studies of either individuals or single companies rather than any kind of large-scale cross-organizational analysis of real-world data. So we started thinking about these issues and started trying to figure out whether there was some way to study local government in a data-driven fashion. And we realized that most U.S. states have sunshine laws that mimic the Federal Freedom of Information Act. And these laws require local government organizations to archive textual records, including in many states' email, and disclose them to the public upon request. So as a result, it's possible to obtain all kinds of local government data via public records requests. So Bruce and I, along with our students, Jim Aaron and Matt Denny, issued public records requests to the 100 county governments in North Carolina, asking for county managers' inboxes and outboxes for a period of one to three months. And we chose North Carolina because it has particularly permissive public records laws and explicitly mentions email. And so what we're doing now is using these emails to really investigate a bunch of different things concerned with local government, both kind of how information flows in and out of local government, how things make it onto budgets, agendas, and so on and so forth. Uh, but also we're starting to look at whether women tend to occupy disadvantaged positions in local government communication networks, and if so, the extent to which this varies depending on the topic of communication. And this is something that hasn't really been done before in a data-driven fashion, in part because it involves being able to analyze uh, topics of communication and the structure of communication networks, which can be really computationally intensive. Um, and at this point, our findings and analyses are still very preliminary. This is a this is really a long-term project that we've been working on for quite some time. In part because it takes a long time to get this kind of data. It's not as simple as you know pulling something from an API. But we're starting to find some evidence that supports some of the existing observational and survey-based findings in this area. And we anticipate that we will have more concrete things to show for this within the next, within the next 12 months or so. So what makes the approach to this project different from some of the projects typically associated with traditional big data? Right. So I think one issue is just how we obtain the data. So rather than using some existing API or something like that, we had to jump through quite some considerable hoops to actually obtain the data for this project. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the project has been has has really been been uh, in progress for for quite some time. Um, and the way I like to think about this is really sort of push versus pull data, or even kind of push versus pull transparency. So over the past few years, many open government data sets have been made available to the public with the stated goal of transparency. And these data sets, it's awesome that they exist. Um, they're, they're instances of what I call push or proactive transparency. That is, government organizations decided which information would be made available and then proactively facilitated its distribution. But in contrast, I would say that pull transparency mechanisms, such as the Freedom of Information Act or state-level sunshine laws, allow other people to request specific pieces of information, and then government organizations must 
comply with this. And these mechanisms, although they're typically very slow and they don't always work particularly well, it's, it's certainly more complicated than, than uh, just downloading something from a website. These mechanisms, though, can be used as an opportunity to really move beyond convenience data sets and to study data that maybe has never been analyzed before to really find out a whole load of new, exciting, substantively interesting findings. It sounds really fascinating. And please do send us uh, a link where we can find more on your research. That would be great. Sure. Uh, Hannah, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you. This has been awesome. If you want to read more about Hannah or some of the topics we've talked about today, we've got all the links you need to get started in the show notes for this episode on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, we talk to Christian Rudder, co-founder of OkCupid, about his book, Dataclism. Who we are when we think no one's looking. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Christian Rudder. He is the co-founder and president of OKCupid and author of the popular blog OK Trends. He graduated from Harvard in 1998 with a degree in math and later served as creative director for SparkNotes. He's here with me today to talk about his recent book, Dataclism, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. So uh, tell us a little bit about OKCupid and how it came to be that you have access to all of this data. Well, OkCupid is a dating site. It's one of the biggest uh, in the country, if not the biggest. And, you know, dating is different than social media. Um, it's something that, that connects people in real life. Um, you know, we don't facilitate online connections. We're like an online way to meet people in person. Um, and so we have to collect a lot of data about the real people that are using the site. You know, your age, your gender, uh, your sexual orientation, your race, um, where you live. All those things matter when when you're talking about romance and when you're talking about attraction and then going to get a beer with somebody or a cup of coffee. And so we have really, really great data on the people who use OkCupid. And part of running the business is to analyze that data to make sure we're doing what it is we're supposed to be doing as well as we can. Okay, so the nerdy among us uh, would have heard of the OkCupid Trends blog, as I had done before I read the book, um, which actually evolved into this book. So how did that blog start? Well, so, so the blog basically unpacks, discusses, analyzes the things that we see people doing on OkCupid. So we, we look at, uh, you know, how different races interact through our website, how men and women judge each other differently, how people describe themselves and, and their profiles, where the messages go on OkCupid. Um, the, the, the spoiler is that they all go to the hot people. Um, so so uh, we, we do this, this kind of analysis in the day-to-day of running a dating site. Um, and we started the blog to share that stuff with the world because we figured, you know, people would be interested. We started writing the blog in 2009. It was right when Facebook was really becoming ascendant and there was a lot of discussion about all the data they were collecting and all this stuff. And, you know, we thought it would demystify and, and, and also make less scary 
um, the process of, of running a website if we just talked about what we were doing and, and how people were using our site. There's a really good quote. Um, I think it comes from the introduction of your book, and it's uh, Twitter, Reddit, Tumblr, Instagram. All these companies are businesses first, but as a close second, they're demographers of unprecedented reach, thoroughness, and importance. Can you unpack that statement a little bit for us? Sure. I, you know, I, what I meant there um, is that people are living their lives through these technologies, and that information is being recorded in the same way that, that someone with a um, you know, a field mic or a legal pad might have gone out into the world 50 years ago and recorded what was happening with human beings. Um, these websites are doing it almost as a byproduct of, of just their service. Uh, and so um, what I wrote the book about was trying to look at that stuff through a, through a sociological or demographic lens. And the, the data is not often looked at like that. It's often seen, you know, most of the discussion of Facebook's data is of advertising revenue, or concerns advertising revenue, or concerns some kind of privacy policy questions, but but few people have been looking at this stuff as a uh, as sort of intellectual resource or as a way to understand the people that are actually using these sites. What's interesting is you note in your book as well that sites like yours, um, Facebook, uh, Reddit, all of those sites. When you look at the data, it seems like it's a it can be a lot more inclusive than some of the straight up research projects that are out there. Well, one of the critiques of traditional academic social research is, is that those papers, a lot of the papers that you read about or that even have become foundational in the science are, are based on what's called a convenience sample, which is a kind of a euphemism for uh, getting the people in your class to be your research subjects if you're a professor or just kind of putting up a flyer in the quad uh, and, and using those people who respond to, to do your research. And of course, those people are almost by definition college educated, uh, therefore likely upper class, um, likely white, certainly in the past. And um, sites like Facebook, you know, 87% of the United States uses Facebook uh, of adults, which is, you know, that's, that's just about the entirety of the country. Um, okay. Cupid has recreated, uh, I think 12 million accounts were created on our site, uh, just last year alone. That's, that's some large double digit proportion of, of just single people in, in the country. Um, Twitter, similar numbers, you know, so like these services are, are, almost universal. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they are absolutely universal, but they're certainly way more representative of the public than, than, a lot, than samples from a lot of previous research. And obviously, you know, academics spend a lot of time making sure that their 30-person sample is representative of, of humanity in general, but you don't have to uh, model or, or theorize that your sample is representative when it actually is a real <laughs> slice of people. You know? Yeah, it's a, it's a nice, shall we say, shortcut. Uh, that doesn't feel like the right word, but... <laughs> right, sure, exactly. So one of the things, of course, you have to do uh, as part of your work with the site is quantify what people would say is often unquantifiable. So things like lust, attraction, um, friendship, sex appeal. How do you even begin to take those seemingly unquantifiable things and turn them into something you can plug into an algorithm? In, in terms of running OkCupid, you know, we look at who you like, who you message, and try to run the site or try to tailor the site. Uh, for you based on what, what you're doing, you know, um, we take a little bit of, of what we tell us, what you tell us you want. So like, if you're like, I'm looking for someone who, you know, they, they need to believe in God, they want to have kids or, you know, they, I, I only am going to date an atheist or, you know, whatever I, I want to non-smoke or any of that kind of stuff. Um, we, we do do that. Um, but, but we also look at who you found attractive who other people like you have found attractive and who you've messaged to show you more people that we think you will also want to message. 
I, I don't think a computer or certainly a dating site, but maybe any computer, any algorithm is going to figure out love. We're, we're just trying to get you to that beer or that cup of coffee, the ultimate <laughs> algorithm. This is almost a universal belief among people who run dating sites. The ultimate algorithm is always with the users. We just show you some people you might want to talk to, a long list, and it's going to be you who picks out someone that you message and certainly you that decides whether you're actually going to go meet them in person. And then once you're in person, you again decide whether you like them. I mean, the best dating algorithm on earth is never going to know how someone laughs and whether it's annoying to you, <laughs> whether, the way that, whether the way they kind of, uh, you know, talk with their hands reminds you of their ex, your ex, you know, like there's so many, like there's so just millions, if not billions of things that go into figuring out uh, whether you really are attracted to somebody, you know, and they could have a perfect profile, beautiful pictures. They went to the same college, whatever. And you sit down and I don't know, they have bad breath that day. They, something uh, just doesn't click. Something doesn't click or something does click, right? And so you, you just, we don't even try to get into that, that level of prediction. I think it's a fool's errand. Literally, our algorithms are, this is our best guess at who's going to reply to a message from you. Ah, okay. And who you will, first of all, who, who you will want to message and who will reply. And then once you guys go through a, a few messages, we figure that chemistry, that kind of mystical thing, that's when that takes over and we're wise to bow out, which we do. So I do want to talk about some of the data in the book, because there's so many fascinating things in there. Um, you have a series of graphs that look at the age of men that women find attractive relative to their own age, and then compare that against the age of women that men find attractive relative to their own age. And most of us would probably expect these to be fairly similar looking graph, but not so. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, women are attracted to men roughly their same age. So, for example, a 30-year-old woman, the most attractive age of guy to her is 30. If a woman is a certain age, the most attractive age of guy to her is roughly her age. For guys, um, and this is true of men who are 20, men who are 30, men who are 40, men who are 50, the most attractive age of woman to them is 20. Just a straight line. They all, 20, 21, um, men just think younger women are hotter, period. Uh, and what's more, the ratings men give are also different than what they say they find attractive or want. Um, you looked both at the search preferences and the ages of women men message the most as well. Yeah. So the way men vote is what we were just talking about. That's what they actually go do when you ask them to kind of use the site. They, they want younger women. But when you, when you say, hey, man, what, what ages are you looking for? That's where kind of taboo and, and sort of social pressure and expectation take over. And, and guys tell you that they're looking for women roughly their same age. Um, and so when you then go out and look at who they message and who they presumably go on dates with, they kind of have to compromise between the two things. It's like, well, I said I was into someone my own age. Uh, I've really been voting the youngest possible age in the data set. Um, and, and so the compromise between those two is they basically message the youngest women in the age bracket that they've told us uh, they're open to seeing. Uh, I'm curious, have you done any digging into whether gay men follow the same patterns and what they see as attractive? Or is this a heterosexual male thing? I have looked into this, and the way it works is um, it's your gender that decides this pattern. So, you know, uh, gay women and straight women have the same pattern. Gay men and straight men have the same patterns. So so it's, your orientation doesn't really have anything to do with it. It's really just your gender. In terms of in terms of how you view, what through what lens you view age, so gay men are also just looking for young men in the same way that straight men are looking for young women, and and gay women are looking for women their same age, similar to the way straight women seek a partner. Has there ever been something that when you go looking for the answer in the data, it really surprises you? Well, one of the, one of the most surprising things is how utterly predictable people are. But, but, but one of the genuinely most surprising things was, at least on OkCupid, uh, some of the most successful profiles are not necessarily the hottest, not 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 the models and the bikinis. And, you know, we have a few. Uh, 
you know, genuinely really attractive people using the site. Uh, but the, the most successful profiles are often the ones that um, kind of stand out or have something a little bit wrong with them. I put wrong in quotes because that's always in the eye of the beholder. It, it's like if you have, uh, you know, a lot of tattoos, for example, there's, there's going to be people that find that to be a turnoff, but there are also going to be people who really into that. And so if you kind of have these divisive features about yourself, maybe your picture shows you dressed up as Gandalf for some kind of like Comic-Con convention or whatever, or you have a lot of tattoos, or you even, you know, you have a picture that, you know, you have a, have a gap in your teeth or something weird like that, you know, um, those profiles actually do really, really well, um, even better than a sort of, you know, to use the female example, like girl next door, kind of blonde, kind of classically beautiful, um, but again, you know, there's a challenge in writing the book is to make make it compelling, even though, you know, t- talking about racism, talking about sexism, looking at how people are attracted to each other. There's there's so much we already know about how those things work or we know that those those forces are in play. But you, you get to look at the numbers behind them, which I think is a unique opportunity because so much of the discussion around these these types of issues is rhetorical, is emotional. Um, and you get to say, well, you know, on, on a dating site. You can on all the dating sites that I looked at. In fact, you can see that you know black men and black women they basically suffered this kind of discount in terms of their rating. Their their messages are replied to less often. Um, they receive uh, fewer messages. Period overall from people from whites, Asians, Latinos, and like, what does this pattern say about us? And you can actually identify it rather than saying I think that this happens or you know we all know that this happens. You can actually put down the numbers and see it in a matrix, which I think is a good starting place for discussions on stuff like that. There's also a section in your book about language that I found really interesting. We all we sort of think of now Facebook and Twitter have been around forever, but the realities are they've only been around, I think, for less than a decade. Um, But we're already starting to be able to look at language in a very different way, because on these social media networks, and probably as well in the messaging system of OkCupid, um, the way people talk in real life is quite often reflected in how they talk to each other in social media. One of the things that I looked at in the book was like, what, what, what is the nature of this language? How is it put together? Um, is it really, you know, when I think of Twitter, I think of a lot of slang, a lot of um, kind of net speak and abbreviations, you know, the letter U for the word Y-O-U. Um, just kind of, I, I think of the language on Twitter, for example, as being dumbed down. You know, that was before I looked into it. And, you know, I processed something like 2 million Twitter accounts. And then I also gathered research done by other linguists or by linguists. Um, and all of us found that these these you know, academic linguists, and then again, myself, when I was doing the research, that the language on Twitter is yeah, surprisingly robust. Like, the word length is longer than kind of normal written English. The lexical density, which is kind of the proportion of meaning-carrying words, so basically nouns and verbs, is higher. And uh, basically, by any way you can measure it, that the language is as robust as any other kind of writing, which was a, a cool thing to look at. And it, would, it kind of makes sense, because that, that 140-character limit means... Every space counts against you all the more, so you might want to use longer words, kind of German style. You just pack it all together with no spaces, so that uh, so that so that you get all the meaning in as, as quickly as you can. It, it was it was interesting to compare the the most frequently used words on Twitter to most frequently used words in English. You do see stuff in English that kind of top one hundred words is a lot of obviously you know articles, helping verbs like have and, and is, uh, but in Twitter you do get stuff that that's a little bit 
more full of content like happy and life and work. And the, the you see is a little bit more topical type of stuff, even in just the hot, well, hot, uh, top 100 words instead of a bunch of prepositions and what have you in, in written English. In your book, you also provide a list of words um, most often used by different genders and different races in their profiles uh, on OkCupid. And it appears indeed that white people really like camping. Sure. Yeah, there, there's uh, camping, wood cutting, and, and then a lot of uh, countryish type of bands are very typical of white people in my data set. Yeah, I think I described it as a music festival for lumberjacks. <laughs> so but it was cool to do to do that work because you get to so so the things that white people that are kind of exclusive to white people, i.e., camping, woodworking, whatever. I know, at least I'm a little bit familiar with because I am also a white person. But then through the same mathematics, I generated a list. And, and it's important to emphasize to your, to your listeners that these aren't things that I just like picked out. This is something that an algorithm kicked out as the most statistically typical of white people. Um, so when I generated those same lists for, for Asians and Latinos and black people, you know, I, did, I didn't know what a lot of that stuff was on those lists because I'm not in those groups. And so you get this kind of uh, statistical list of sort of the, the, the things that you only really know or only really into if you're inside of a group. I mean, which I, was, was enjoyable for me to get to get the output from the work because you, you concoct the algorithm more or less in the abstract on a, on a piece of paper or typing, and then it generates the stuff that um, draws a pretty rich picture of a culture. You also looked at the words least likely to be used by these groups as well, which was an interesting contrast to sort of go between the two sections of data. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one great thing about uh, math. You can kind of multiply by negative one, so to speak, or divide, you know, put it put it under a one in, in, in a formula and you kind of get the inverse, right? And so I did that with my algorithm. And it, instead of it the kicking out the most typical things, it kicked out the least typical things. And you get, you know, I think least typical for, for white people with slow jams. Um, you just, you get, it's just, it's a really funny kind of negative. It's like the comedian's version of, of a, of, of a, group of people basically with it with those lists um but yeah the, those lists are kind of endlessly entertaining so uh, the subtitle of your book is really apt i think um who we are when we think no one's looking uh, because right now we seem to be entering a sort of golden age of tracking and demographics where data can be collected and stored about people living their day-to-day lives um on facebook on twitter while we're wearing our fit band or our fuel band or whatever they're called <laughs> and i'm torn because i think about all the fascinating stuff we can learn from looking at these huge data sets uh, that are some of the most unbiased we could ever hope for and yet it's all in the proprietary hands of companies and that makes me a little bit uneasy because how do we know what the stat is being used for or whether it will do any good? Yes. I mean, I, I agree it is a bummer that it is almost all proprietary data. And I ran up against that wall myself, even with, you know, obviously with OkCupid, okay, I had privileged access, but Facebook, Google, that kind of stuff, you know, I'm never going to be able to get in there and look at it in the same way that I could with OkCupid. Okay, um, Facebook, for example, is interested in looking at this data for um, sociological, you know, scientific reasons. You know, they put together an incredible uh, data science team that publishes papers um, of basically no monetary value to Facebook, but of great academic value, or, or at least of academic value, you know, peer-reviewed papers and, and you know, real journals. Um, we've worked with some academics for papers, um, again, for almost for no money for us just to do it, to share. But it's a push-pull because there are privacy concerns and, and you know, Facebook... Every time they do anything, people ask questions at least or just get mad. Um, but, you know, Facebook doesn't know anything about you that you haven't told it. There's a lot of conflation of the issues that goes on. I mean, Facebook is its own thing. And then, but people tend to fold it in with, say, what the NSA is doing. Um, and that's for me is where the kind of line is crossed. You know, the NSA knows stuff about you because they've hacked your Facebook or they, they've got backdoor access to your Gmail, and you haven't told the NSA any of this stuff, they've gone out and gotten it. And that, that to me, is feels really bad. 
Um, you know, I, look, I, I guess I'm comfortable with it because I'm also on the inside and that makes a lot more sense. It's just kind of like, I don't like flying and I'm always nervous on a plane. I'm sure the pilots all think everything is just totally normal. And why would anyone be nervous on a plane? Everyone relax. Um, and, and I can't, I have a hard time getting on board with that attitude. And I think being on the inside helps so much in terms of feeling good about what's going on. Do you think that the privacy concerns that we're seeing may sort of slowly die out as the younger generation grows up without ever having a world without something like Facebook? On the one hand, you know, I don't want, even though, again, I have a horse in the race in terms of, of running one of these companies, I don't, it's, I don't think it's necessarily good that the privacy concerns die out per se, because those concerns keep everyone honest, right? We're at a weird place right now in particular where people's adoption of these technologies far outstrips their understanding of how they work. That just isn't good for the users. That isn't good for the purveyors of social media either. I, I, I would like everyone to understand how algorithms work, to understand how A-B testing on the web works, how experiments work. Um, that would be great because people can go into OkCupid or Facebook totally informed. And I hope that's where it goes. People will learn through controversies, just through exposure, through whatever, uh, we'll learn how websites work, basically. And then, you know, they can keep asking questions. They'll ask different questions maybe in 10 years or in, in 20 years when people have grown up with these technologies. And those questions will keep the Facebooks and the Googles and the OkCupids honest. So I, I like the questions, but I think, uh, I, I hope that the, 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 the gap between the popularity and the understanding of these things will, will close. And I feel like it is. Kristen, thank you for being here today. It was a really interesting book. Oh, thanks a lot. Well, look, it's my pleasure. It was good to talk to you for sure. If you want to learn more about Christian, OKCupid, or his book, Dataclysm, we've got all the links you need to get started on the show notes for this episode at our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to our social media feeds, to subscribe to the show in iTunes, and to join the discussion by leaving a comment on our episode posts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. (laughs) 